Hi, everyone. Welcome back to our podcast. I am Kelly Birmingham. This is a retrospective look back across the autism spectrum, talking through my 25 plus year career. I am minus my partner in crime, Jennifer Lucero, mom to Dylan and Ethan. She is sick, home with Dylan, but I have a very special guest. Um, I'm super excited about it. So I'm going to get into it. I have the famous Mandy Ralston, podcast extraordinaire. Hi, hi, Mandy. Hi, Kelly. Hi, everybody. <laughs> I know you're on everyone's podcast. I got to you late, but I'm thinking you saved the best for last. So I'm, or not the last, but near the end. So Mandy, this is called the dinosaurs of ABA, this topic, right? And I actually have Sarah Trotman to, who first introduced that term to me dinosaurs of ABA. So I stole it from her. I'm going to give her where credit is due, but it's kind of become a thing that people talk about. And so it's 2023. This marks my 20th year being certified as a BCBA. At the, in 2003, at the end of 2003 is when I was certified, right? I had finished up my coursework, finished up my supervision and was taking my exam. And when I took my exam, which I think yours was the same, <laughs> it was paper and pencil. It was yes. a little little you circled things and you had your little piece of paper that you could write your notes on and you went into a test center mine was at ucla in a mm -hmm. classroom <laughs> so yeah you and i have both been certified and it, how long have you been certified 2004 right no i was first certified in 2001 2001 so predates yeah. me that's right right yeah i had the same experience i had my my number two pencil in a scantron in nashville <laughs> Tennessee, and I had to print out my directions from MapQuest to find where this place was uh, in like a four-hour drive. So yeah, uh, dinosaur indeed. <laughs> then you're perfect. So perfect for this topic. So let's talk about this. So there's, we know like over, what is it? 50% plus have only been certified in the last few years of BCPAs, right? And it's going higher three. and higher, three, last three years. Yeah. Iron Heart. Yep. And so I will never forget, I first spoke at Cal ABBA, California ABA Association, at, in 2006. And I was super nervous. And I was like, I'm going to do this presentation. And I know she'll never hear it, but I'm, it has been my mission to find her, Jane Howard. Jane yeah. Howard was in my presentation. Nice. And I was a whippersnapper, right? I knew the shit. I knew it all. You know, I've been certified for three whole years. I had been practicing in the field since 1995. So I've got that little bit of street cred on me, but I knew it all. And right. she railed me at the end of my presentation. <laughs> <laughs> railed me. Oh. I was in the bathroom crying. And she oh. basically was like, you know, you didn't present enough research to, you know, stake your claim. I was you know, my thing is social skills. My thing is assessment tools and looking at how do we improve and increase social skills for children on the autism spectrum, group ABA kind of work. That was always my thing. I had a practice doing that. I published a book doing that. And I was like, I'm the shit. And she let me have it. And I, it took like a couple years later for me to go, oh my God, she's right. <laughs> right? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I, you know, hashtag is not binary. I don't know that, uh, if right is the right word, right? Like, I think there's practitioner experience and I think there's academic knowledge and I think that there's a lot in between. 
Um, and so she, she may have been right. You weren't citing enough research or evidence-based in order to back up the claims. Um, but I, th I think there's a way to talk about those things and, and put your disclaimer out there that, hey, yeah, I'm coming first as a practitioner and speaking to you about this. Uh, I don't have my own personal research. I didn't do an experimental, experimental design. Um, but I can tell you as a, you know, qualitative data, maybe not quantitative data, that this is what I found to be effective. And I, you know, within the realms of science, you, you can't go off and say that swimming with dolphins was really exceptional for me. But, uh, but anyway. I wish you were there. Why couldn't you have been there to help me? <laughs> anyway, I tell that story because I'm finding myself doing that now a little bit with the new BCBAs. Like a little bit, I'm saying like, well, you're not doing this right and you're not doing that right. <laughs> and mm -hmm. so it made me reflective on like how we go about doing that. But it also made me think about like, what's changed in 20 years? I mean, you, 2001, you, what's your number? You know how at, for your BCBA number, like I'm, I'm number 1,368. At that time, you had to have been in the hundreds. Um, I was in the 1500s, uh, and, and that was a BCABA number initially, nice. right? So I got, um, I got into certification by way of a, a grandfathering program that the BACB started with the assumption that there were people that were already working in the field that may not have a master's degree related to applied behavior analysis or special education, but they had enough experience that with a intensive boot camp, and mentorship from a senior level PhD behavior analyst that they could get enough training and expertise and mentorship that they could sit for that exam. And so that's what I did. I had my 90 hours of coursework in Jacksonville, Florida with Dr. Carbone. Uh, my cohort was about 20, 25 of us together down there in 2000. Uh, and then I spent the next year mailing VHS tapes back and forth in the U.S. Postal Service uh, and talking on, a, talking on a landline with him while he's in either Florida or New York about all the different procedures I was demonstrating via these VHS tapes and filling out data sheets. Um, oh. and, and, and so that's how I, I came to be a BCABA in the first place. And I didn't go to get my uh, master's degree until about 2011. Uh, and at that point, yeah, again, I've got a decade of experience. Um, I did an Carbone, online program. <laughs> yeah, yeah, a lot of it through Carbone. Um, but yeah, I, uh, I did the ASU online coursework for a master's in education, and uh, it would not have prepared me to be a behavior analyst, speaking frankly. Uh, yeah. Probably would not have prepared me to be a special education or an educator uh, either. But with the combination of that 10 years of experience, plus having already been in behavior, anal uh, behavior analysis for that time, plus the content of the coursework, yes, it did enrich my, my understanding of autism and, and how to work with people with uh, special needs and intellectual disabilities. But I think there's a lot of folks that are finding some of those online accredited courses uh, may not have nearly uh, as much experience taking those courses, um, getting their supervised field experience, passing a test, um, and then immediately going into practice. And there is a great deal of difference between that trajectory uh, and the ones that we had, where we had quite a bit of failings before we even got to the exam. <laughs> yeah, you know, I just read, um, I just read that the pass rate has gone down 6%. In the last year and some folks 
some, and there was sort of speculation as to why some were saying, you know, more online pandemic learning, but someone actually brought to the attention that the universities, it was just an article, it was someone's opinion, um, but mm -hmm. they said universities have taken over some of the like um, indirect supervisory hours and they're assigning articles and podcasts for people to listen to in lieu of more like hands-on direct kind of experience. And I have often said that I personally feel that we are not, so most of the folks that are BCBAs are working with children with autism, right? Children or adults with autism at this point. It's women mm -hmm. working with families with children and autism, and we'll talk about that whole thing. But mm -hmm. they're not, the programs in my opinion are not teaching enough about autism and the family dynamics of autism, right? And what it's like to raise a child with autism. And, you know, I constantly hang my hat on the 2018 Compassionate Care article because I was like, fine, someone finally published what I feel like I've been saying for a hundred years. Like we're yeah. not doing enough to talk about that topic. And so people have these terms and then, you know, the classic one everyone uses is extinction, right? Like put the behavior on extinction, then you go to the family and they can't put it on extinction and then we get mad at them because they're not following the procedure, right? Mm -hmm. I just don't think she's a training for that yeah yeah uh i think the compassionate care conversation has been very good to your point about not having coursework related to autism there's also very few instances that i've seen in the the curriculums related to childhood development so people don't even understand 100%. the difference between what a typically uh developing childhood trajectory might look like versus somebody that's impacted with an intellectual or developmental disability or autism so so yeah absolutely I, I, these these course uh, uh track programs don't necessarily prepare you to become a behavior analyst or a practitioner in any way shape or form uh, just as you know as we all know the the credential the bcba passing that exam is is merely a designation of minimal competence um just like having a, a medical md behind your name is a, a designation of minimal competence like that's why they have a residency program uh before they sort of set you loose to practice medicine so i i think we're, we're getting some feedback on what we're missing in our training and supervision processes. And I think we'll see um, some progress in those areas in the next five to 10 years. Yeah, you know, let's go back in time. You and I both took our exam paper pencil, right? Um, and it was, there were not many women back then in the 2000s in this field. I and mean, I vividly remember my first company on the East Coast, go in my LinkedIn profile and you can see it. And, um, it was all men. It was all men, mm. me and two other women, but the majority, all of the positions, the training, the leadership were men. And, you know, I famously tell the story that I was, it was in 2000, actually. I can't remember if it was 99 or 2000, where I was in charge of the Boston area for in-home ABA. It was fairly new back then. It was actually a law that got passed in Massachusetts called, I think it was called the Katie Beckett Law. And- oh, wow companies insurance did not pay for it it was a regional center but state funded and all of a sudden we could start providing in-home mba at that point and so i oversaw the training and sort of intake and development of that program and they famously hired a man who i supervised i had finished my master's degree he had not and he got paid more money than i did because he had a family and i was single 
And there was no ethics codes back then, as you and I were talking right. about earlier, none. And I famously remember sit, watching a panel with Jerry Shook and folks and men folks saying, we need ethics code, knowing all the ethical violations everyone up there had done, except for Jerry Shook, by the way. <laughs> right? There was no, I mean, what was there? There was nothing. Well, yeah, you can't call it an ethics violation if there's no ethical code yet, right? right. And to your point about the disparity in your pay versus your colleagues, your male colleagues pay, uh, there are um, practice ethical codes for behavior analysts, but business ethics codes are still not a thing. <laughs> I mean, there's laws, but um, and the laws have improved some of those gender inequities, but uh, certainly there was nothing to really stop that person from getting paid more than you based on their their gender. So. Yeah. Uh, talk about ahead. your talk about your experience. You know, twenty years yeah. in. Yeah, I, I think about what you're saying. Like, I I pretty much formulated my own companies. Um, starting in 1999, it was me and three other women that were founders. Uh, and then when I founded it again in 2007, I was the sole owner of Verbal Behavior Consulting that uh, I then. Uh, was acquired in 2019, uh, some 12 years later. So I, I've been at the top of my own food chain as far as the organizations that I've worked in for the most part. But to your point, certainly the administrators that I had to work with within school systems were male, almost always. Um, a lot of the individuals that held the uh, yeah executive areas and some of the different organizations that I had to work with were more likely to be male. And, and it, just as a, a general discussion point, you know, I said this to you earlier, um, it's been an interesting experience as a queer presenting lesbian to be in different uh, areas of work or society or community uh, that are typically uh, have a lot of males in the, in the room for it, right? So the, just, you know, the stereotypical boys club areas. And, you know, I see what happens to male and female dynamics, but what's an interesting observation for me is how I get treated as being that queer presenting lesbian. I, I tend to get a couple of different reactions in those group scenarios with that group think of a lot of males or male dominated environment. Number one is, oh, Mandy's kind of like us. She's kind of like one of the boys. And so they'll behave in ways in front of me that they wouldn't necessarily behave in ways with a more feminine presenting, heterosexual presenting woman. Or the opposite is they will not give me any deference whatsoever because I'm not mateable. Um, and so that's been wow. a really, really interesting observation. And when wow. I tell that to other uh, women, especially heterosexual women, the, the eye popping of yep. oh my gosh there's even a third layer to this yep. <laughs> is uh is enlightening and i think it's uh good that we women well all genders frankly talk about these things because it's harmful um to what otherwise could be a productive workforce despite gender or sex you know <laughs> that makes me think of the early conference scene and i don't know if it's changed so much but you and i talked about this a little bit. I have like conference, I don't know what, anxiety, fear. Um, and a lot of it comes from my early years at conferences, particularly Cal Abba. And I was just talking to actually Melissa Nosek the other day. And she said, Kelly, Cal Abba is famous for drama. And I thought, oh my God, she's right. There is always drama at Cal Abba. And it used <laughs> to be, 
right? Like 2000, I presented 2006, 2007, 2008. Like I was going to, I had a practice. I had a book I was pumping. I was making my name out there. And what I found was everything happened outside of the conference at the bar. And yes. all for, in Cal Abba, they had it at the same hotel in Northern California forever. Same honky tonk bar that was always there and the people were around back then and they knew and then there'd be like the famous people sightings I was not one of them but all men in our field and they mosey on up to the bar and next thing you know and most of them are married um the young women BCPAs were buying them drinks they were all hanging out one of my friends went off to a room with a very well-known established male BCBA author, all kinds of things in the field. And like all the like side things would go on at the bar. And yeah. I just remember going, what is like, we're professionals. What the hell is everyone doing? And so I have all this like conference anxiety to this day over, over this, because for years I watched the like male female dynamic in these bars be unbelievable to me. And it just, it frankly disgusted me. Well, it's 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 not unique to behavior analysis and not unique right. to our field. Uh, professional conferences, quote unquote, professional conferences right. in general. I think there's a lot of that that happens. Uh, I think, you know, we're we're on a post Me Too society now, yeah. right? Uh, so I think we're starting to see that behavior change on both sides of the aisles of gender. Um, and I think that this, these types of conversations need to be had because, yeah, again, uh, I don't know that we have time to go through the, the entire talk show of why that has occurred historically. But, you know, I hear I hear the male defense a lot being, well, it was a different time and place. That was a different generation and how we understood the world and how we operated in the world. And I think my simple retort to that is, well, it never should have been like that in the first place. Right. So, um, so yeah, uh, let's put some sunlight on some of these issues um, and, and hope that it, it, it cleans up some of the mold. Yeah, you know, what do you think? So obviously some improvements to our field are all we had a code of ethics. What was the first year? Was 2013 the first year? I'm sure I had that wrong. <laughs> It might be because I mean it was right around the time that I was getting my master's degree, and they they implemented that change between BC capital A, oh yeah, yeah, and BC lowercase a BA, yeah. which is what I was. I started out with a capital A, and they're like, oh, people are getting confused about whether you're okay to do certain things within uh, our practice guidelines, and so we're going to change that to a bottom A, so everybody knows that you're a, or is it associate or assistant now because it was. I think it's associate. Okay, so it was assistant, now it's associate, but whatever, they had to change that language too. And then they announced coming in 2013 or 2014, whatever it was, that you will no longer be able to practice independently as a BCABA. And so that's when I started getting into my master's degree and making sure that I had everything set up to continue to support my clients and my staff that I had working with me at that point. But yeah, it's 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 taken a while. I mean, it wasn't until... 2012 that there were 10,000 certificates that's right right uh-huh that's it that's all we had it was a very slow growth initially yeah. in that hockey stick on the graph right yep so I've got a graph um that I have reworked 
you know, everybody's seen that uh, Taka graph that, you know, shows the increase 241% over the last, uh, since 2000 graphs that's sort of widely used in, in um, PowerPoint slides, et cetera. And what yeah. I've done is I've gone through on that timeline and also inserted things that have happened in technology and in clinical understanding of autism, right? And so if you if you juxtapose the growth of the behavior analysts mm -hmm. within understanding that the DSM-3 was in 1980, and that was the first time that autism was actually separated out from a diagnosis of childhood schizophrenia. Right. And then by 95, now we're at one in 500 individuals. And then we have the internet is widely adopted between 95 and 98. And so by 97, we have one in 150 individuals diagnosed with autism. And then the DSM-4 comes out. So there's all these things that are happening at the same time that are driving the growth of both providers, insurance coverage, and, and autism diagnoses. It's all happening at the same time. And so that's how we've gotten to this sort of perfect storm of that 500% increase in providers in the last 10 years. It's just exploded year over year based on those three forces coming together at the same time. Wow. So if I'm thinking about it, sort of like the, when I look back, you know, there was no ethics code. It was a man's world right? I will say, however, my clinical experience was phenomenal, right? Like my, the mm -hmm. clinical training and experience and supervision I got to prepare myself was phenomenal. So, mm -hmm. you know, you know, move ahead to today's world. What I'm seeing is clinical super, supervisor experience is not good, as my, mm -hmm. in my personal opinion, right? We have young certified people supervising new certifications, right? And so that we don't have that depth. But what I see on the positive, I'm hearing you say, and I want you to if you could share a little bit more about that is technology is making things better. And as an old dog, I'm, that's why I bow down to you and your technology. Cause I'm like, shit, I couldn't even restart my computer today and get my <laughs> zoom link going. Right. <laughs> but I do think that technology is the part that's going to save our industry a little bit. And tell me how, like you're on the forefront of that. So tell me your thoughts on that. Yeah. Uh, thank you. Um, so yeah, with that 500% increase in providers, there's no way for us to realistically have the manpower to mentor or train our way out of this quality dilution problem that we're having. There's just not, not enough dinosaurs around to help propagate this new cohort of providers, right? So what I'm trying to do is to, to leverage my 24 years of experience here into uh, a clinical decision technology platform that will help providers learn to think about how they need to think about all the information that goes into treatment planning, beginning before they even bring the first person into their care, right? So having a, a, a technology dashboard that lets you access multiple types of models that answer questions that are very um, prominent to our current field. Uh, you know, I did, recently did a survey on LinkedIn asking about some of the, the top ones that I hear people ask for help on uh, intensity and dosage, right? How many hours per week do I give this person? That is not a standardized clinical process anywhere in the field. And, and even from organization to organization, most groups do not have a standardized clinical decision-making process for that. And we need to get to one. Uh, same thing with establishing medical necessity, right? That is not a standardized clinical process. You also have multiple funders that interpret it multiple different ways. 
so really having understanding between what is medically necessary, what is uh, law from state to state, what is requirement from funder to funder, that's a very complicated process to navigate. Um, understanding how to write goals or based off of what assessments, right? What's important for this individual, what is both um, meaningful and measurable, right? Yeah. Uh, so yeah, the, the technology that I'm building is, is, um, is definitely bumper rails uh, for people to be able to think about all this information. It does not tell you what to do. It tells you what to think about. Tells you how to think about it. It references different journal articles, work aids you might want to consider. It is still up to you to make the final decisions. It is still your clinical choice. So that's why uh, that's why the name <laughs> non-binary solutions hashtag it's not binary because there is no white, one right answer to any of these things right now. So we've got to make the decisions, show how we made those decisions, and then present the data on what happens to the outcomes for those individuals so that we can understand what's effective for who under what circumstances. And it's, it's, I can't even believe, you know, I, you know, 20 plus years later, we don't have that, right? Um, but I, I, when I reflect back, I think, I mean, we've only had ethic codes for a certain amount of time. We've only had practice guidelines for less than 10 years, right? A lot of people don't even know there are practice guidelines still to this day, right? Right. <laughs> and, and that practice guidelines are only like, like a piece of the puzzle that then you need to use to make the kind of decisions you're talking about. And to an earlier point is like child development. What neurotypical children, what does neurotypical child development look like? Like that's my thing. I remember having to go back and take courses and say like, well, what, what is supposed to be happening right now, right? And I, and that was like a turning point for me to stop doing the look at me goals. But I stopped doing look at me goals in like 2003 or four because I realized that that was stupid. <laughs> <laughs> right. Like, what what's the reinforcement value for the person to look at me? Nothing. <laughs> right. Made, it made me feel good, right? It was, That's you know made the list the speaker feel good it was reinforced right. the speaker, not the listener so so yeah so how do we all right so t let's let's do a, a shameless plug for a minute i'll put your information in the session notes but like if someone were to reach out to non-binary solutions what what would they get from that what would happen next uh, well, currently I'm working with just a few groups that are uh, my custom beta clients. I'm making custom intake models for those folks, just small to medium provider groups. Um, again, really trying to help them understand their own process and who's coming into their care and setting up their clients for best possible outcomes as an individual before day one of treatment. Um, what I'm working on in the background, uh, currently raising funds, uh, getting some investment dollars to come through. I've got a development team that is working on making that proprietary uh, services or software as a service model, excuse me, that will then be able to license per user seat. Um, and I hope to have some kind of uh, version 1.0 available this spring uh, to sort of release into the wild that people kick the tires on and, and tell me what they like and, and what kind of adjustments they would like to see. So, um, so yeah, just follow me on social media if you're not already um, and maybe sign up for the uh, newsletter on nonbinarysolutions.com and I will try to keep people uh, uh, up to date on what exactly we're, we're, we're doing. And you'll be forward. presenting on this at APBA this year, right? 
That's right. I've got a, a workshop and uh, invited symposium panel um, that I'll be speaking on, talking a little bit about um, quality of life and outcomes uh, and how to write medically, necess medically necessary goals as well related to those topics. So, And I'll also be um, presenting at the Autism Invest Investor Summit as well. So uh, you California folks, if you want to come see me, uh, I'll be in LA sometime in April there. Oh, maybe I'll track you down. I presented there last year. It's a, it's a fun place. It's a fun time. It yeah. is. Yeah. Yeah. It's a, it's a different group of people. So different yeah. types of conversations. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. Well, all right. So dinosaurs of ABA, things are getting better. Yes. <laughs> things are looking yes. better. Technology is probably a big part of it. And then also looking at how we're really supervising the depth of supervision for our newly minted BCBAs. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I think about uh, dinosaurs at ABA. There's a, a far side cartoon that's got uh, a bunch of dinosaurs uh, behind rocks smoking, right? <laughs> and, and the caption says the real reason that dinosaurs went extinct. And so I think, I think the, the lesson here for us dinosaurs of ABA is that we've got some old habits and practices that we probably need to drop in order to make sure that we sustain into the next generation uh, and we can deal in this environment. So. That was a perfect way to close out. Thank you. I'll track that down. <laughs> All right. Thanks, Minnie. Good to talk to you. Thank you, Kelly. You're awesome. I really appreciate the, uh, the, the time to be here. So, Bye. All right. Cheers.